And welcome back, loyal listeners, to Quarantine Cast 2020. I am your host, Mr. DeSani. We're all here in an air of uncertainty, like really we have not experienced as a people in a very long time. And part of that is because we don't know what the new normal is going to be, what changes are going to occur between now and when life gets back to normal, whatever that normal is going to be. We're still learning about this COVID disease and how long it's going to be with us and what those impacts are going to be. And what we do know, and this is something that I had a hard time getting over the notion of, is that there will be no siren that goes off and everything is just back to normal. Even a vaccine, the rollout will take much longer than most people anticipate. And living life the way we did is just an unlikely scenario. There's going to be changes. There's going to be casualties in the way that we used to live. Things like shaking hands may not survive the coronavirus. I have a friend who is a bit of a germaphobe. He is thrilled about this. He's been looking for a socially acceptable reason to get out of shaking hands for years, and maybe this will be it, that the idea that if you don't shake someone's hand, there's something wrong with you, especially as a man, especially in a professional setting, may go by the wayside. There could be changes. Another change there might be is there might be a change in how we do business, specifically hard currency. Cash and coin, already on the decline, we may see even decline further. But there is more to getting rid of paper money than you might think. And I believe money will be more resilient than some experts are postulating that it might be. When Europe decided to go to the euro, the European Union went to the euro, a universal currency, uh, to help make business easier between European nations. The biggest resistance to that move was oftentimes a cultural one. The British pound, the, the German mark, the French franc had great cultural, had great patriotic value to those countries. They were an identifiable characteristic of those countries. Their leaders, their most famous moments and creeds were on those slips of paper and on those coins. And to have those taken away and replaced with something generic was something that really viscerally hit at the people of those nations. And there was a lot of resistance, not because the euro wouldn't make things easier, but because it was taking away that was something identifiably part of their culture. In the same way, after the flag itself, there might not be anything more identifiable with the United States than the greenback, than our currency. And of those slips of currency, I would argue, to bring us back to what we talked about in part one of this podcast, George Washington. The dollar bill is probably the most recognizable piece of currency in the history of planet Earth. And there, front and center, is the father of our country, George Washington. Now, I don't know George Washington, but if I had to guess, I think he'd hate the dollar bill. Not because of what it stands for, 
but because, boy, did we take a god-awful picture to use of Washington on the dollar bill. I personally hate the picture of Washington on the dollar bill. Washington is pictured in his era as elder statesman. He's wearing the white powdered wig. Frankly, he looks old. His cheeks are concave. We all know about his dental issues. And it is not the powerful, striking, imposing Washington that won the hearts and minds of the American people. And George Washington strikes me as a bit of a vain guy. I think he'd be mortified to see himself commemorated for to most people's memory like he is in the dollar bill. George Washington is someone all Americans know and simultaneously know very little about. If you ask someone for an anecdote about George Washington, they are most likely to tell you something that didn't happen. They might tell you that he had wooden teeth. Now, please, people, stop and think about the consequences of having a piece of wood in your mouth at all time. Wooden teeth are an impossibility. The saliva, the acid in it, would eat them away. There'd be splinters in your gums. They'd be a disaster. Washington did have awful dental problems. He used animal teeth. He had cadaver's teeth at times. He's always swapping out new things because of his dental problems. But please, his teeth were not made of wood. It's ridiculous. The story I get most often in class is the cherry tree story. An early biographer of Washington, in an effort to show the hubris of Washington, his, his unslakable thirst for honesty, even as a young man, concocted a story where George Washington is as a young boy, five, six, seven, I don't know how old he was. He's gifted an axe. And first of all, a kinder, gentler world where we are giving children axes for their elementary school age birthdays, but I digress. Washington is so excited to use his new toy, he runs outside and apparently just starts chopping the first thing he sees, which is his father's prized cherry tree. He cuts it down. Dad comes home from work for the antebellum revolutionary equivalent. And he says, who chopped down my cherry tree? And George Washington, as a young man in this story, so perfect, so honest, so self-actualized, goes up to his father and says, father, t'was I who chopped down your tree. And then Washington's father presumably would have beat the hell out of him because that's how discipline would have been handled in this era. There is not a shred of evidence to suggest this story is true. It was most likely an invention of one of Washington's early biographers, just to fill in the early pages of the book and establish Washington's impeccable character. And so we have these sort of biographical sketches of Washington, and they're not even true. And the real ones are so much better. First of all, going back to the unimpressive picture of Washington on the dollar bill, Washington was a striking, physically imposing figure. In an era where people were much shorter and smaller than they are today, Washington stood about six feet four inches. He was a hulking man. Washington would have had what we would have called today a bit of a dad bod. He had a little bit of the belly. 
He had the big hips. And in the revolutionary era, that was considered to be the finest form of a man. It's always kind of funny to see how forms of beauty progress through time. Um, Washington being having, having a bit of a belly, having a big butt, that was in, uh, in the colonial era. And the same goes for women. Uh, for women, you wanted to be curvy. You wanted to have big childbearing hips. Uh, and you also wanted to have skin that was as pale milk white as possible. And the reason this was seen as a sign of beauty and the reason this made you attractive is because if you could live a life that can afford you to never have the sun touch you, that means that you must be wealthy. If you were a little bit on the curvy side, man or woman, it meant that you must be wealthy. There was no such thing as overweight poor people until the 20th century when cheap processed food becomes available. So a little bit of girth and some pale skin were signs of affluence. And when matchmaking was more socioeconomic than having to do with love or even lust for that matter, these were important signs to make you an attractive person. It's a strange era. If you were a girl and you were skinny and tan and to the point or you had muscles, you know, some definition on you, instead of a more feminine look to you, you would have been seen as unattractive. I guess things come full circle and they'll probably go another way some hundreds of years in the future. Washington was known for his being good at just about everything. He was one of those people that everyone looked up to. He literally, in some cases, he dominated a room when he walked in. He was considered one of the best horsemen in, in Virginia. In an era when riding a horse was more important than any of the social characteristics you can think of today, Washington was the best of the best. The big man was light on his feet. Washington was an incredible dancer. He dominated these balls. These women would literally scrap to get on his dance card. That was a thing back then. Washington, though, is not as prim and proper as some people might believe him to be. Washington once hand copied the rules of gentlemanly etiquette or some such thing as a penmanship activity as a young man. And people kind of think Washington must have been um, a little bit of a tightwad because like he was like this. Not so. Washington's men said when the general is enraged, he can, quote, cuss the paint off a wall. He would dress down grown men and bring them to tears when his ire was up. And apparently Washington was not afraid to have a good time if you saw his bar tab from the time after he was inaugurated to the Oval Office. I guess there was no Oval Office yet, but the, the, his first presidency. Washington also had an unquenchable desire for fame as someone born in the colonies and not in Britain proper. 
He had a chip on his shoulder. He always believed that no matter how rich or wealthy or respected or powerful he was, people were always sort of looking down on him in his early life because he wasn't a proper Englishman. And he was always out looking for ways to prove himself. He will go as a very young man in his 20s on a daring expedition to contact the French on behalf of the governor of Virginia to tell them the Ohio River Valley is a British possession. The first time he sees combat, uh, he will say that he heard the bullets whizzing past his ears and there was, quote, something charming about the sound. A daring guy. Washington will be thrust into national and international prominence in a series of events that will lead right here in our backyard in western Pennsylvania into starting the French and Indian War. Washington's militia will be dispatched to attempt to dislodge the French from their fort at the banks of the Ohio River, Fort Duquesne, modern-day Pittsburgh. To make a long story short, Washington, betrayed by his Indian allies, will be pushed back and forced to make a ramshackle defense at a place he dubs Fort Necessity. He will be defeated by a larger French and Indian contingent, and he will be forced to sign a surrender. His defeat and subsequent parole at the hands of the French were the most humiliating moment of Washington's life. This was his first command, and he had failed. In an additional piece of ignominy, he was forced to sign a document saying that he had murdered a French captive. Washington couldn't read French, didn't know what he was signing in the document. And this was something that would badger him the rest of his life. The date he signs this surrender was the 4th of July. And for Washington, July 4th was the anniversary of his greatest shame and embarrassment for the better part of his life. So, last time we talked about the idea of forces in history versus great man history. And how the 21st century has led people to embrace the idea of forces in history being more important than individuals. When the 13 colonies slide toward revolution, when the shot heard round the world is fired, when the declaration is signed in Philadelphia in 1776. By the way, quick side story here. I love this one. Once again, like most good historical anecdotes, it may or may not be true, but won't stop me from telling it. News traveled much slower than it does today. You live in an era of instantaneous communication right now. Wasn't so in 1776. And when the Declaration of Independence was signed and the last signatures went on on July 4th, 1776, on the other side of the world, King George III, who usually kept a meticulous diary of his day's events and his meetings with ministers and his personal musings. On July 4th, he was tired and he just wanted to get to bed. So he wrote a single line for July 4th, 1776 in his diary. The King of England wrote July 4th, 1776. 
nothing important happened today, period. Anyways, when the revolution begins, I really wish there was a Las Vegas of the 18th century that could have handicapped who was going to win this war. I'd love to see what the odds were, what people speculated was going to be the result of this conflict. There were some ways to look at this conflict where you said, how can Britain not win? Britain is the most powerful nation on earth. It has a massive navy, the biggest and most powerful in the world. It has a powerful military and what it can't supply with its own troops, it can call up from its colonies, or it could pay mercenaries. And British credit was unlimited. The Brits could borrow as much money as they wanted to in the same way the modern day United States can just borrow as much money as it needs. The Britain had the, the AAA rating that the United States carries today. And then you look at their American opposition in this war. First of all, the United States was anything but united. About one third of the American population were considered loyalists, Tories. They wanted to stay a part of the British and some would even actively work for the British against the Patriots during the revolution. A full another third just wanted to be left alone. They had farms and families, they had livelihoods, and their whole goal was just to survive this conflict and carry on with their lives. So that leaves only about one third of the American colonial population who's actively trying to resist the British in any sort of appreciable way. On top of that, the new United States government is pathetically weak. This idea of democracy seems like lunacy. The Articles of Confederation, the first document that formed a government, was so afraid of a strong, tyrannical, centralized government that they made the ruling Congress so weak it had no real power. Do you realize under the Articles of Confederation, the federal government was not allowed to tax its people? Taxes were supposed to be paid, wait for this one, voluntarily. Think about that. If every day you got your paycheck, there was a little box, how much would you like to donate to the federal government this paycheck? I don't think we'd be raising quite as much money as we are now. So this looked like a mess. When the war started, the United States had no navy. Zero. And the Brits had the greatest navy in the world. And when it comes to an army, well, the Continental Army, if you can see me, I'm doing the air quotes, was a bunch of angry farmers and trappers, most with no military experience whatsoever, to say nothing about the fact that they were comically undersupplied. The Vegas odds makers, looking at those factors, might have thought the Americans had no chance. But then, hindsight being 2020, we look at some of the things the Americans did have going for them. The biggest one is the nature of what victory meant. 
the Americans would not have to cross the Atlantic Ocean, invade Britannia, capture Buckingham Palace, and kill King George to declare themselves victors in the revolution. What the Americans would have to do to win this revolution was simply not lose. The British would have to raise an army, cross the Atlantic, and subjugate the entire North American eastern seaboard. They would have to destroy Washington and his armies. They would have to capture and hold major cities against a hostile population who were using guerrilla tactics against them. This was not going to be easy. The Americans could win this war by simply not losing. Because every day the revolution continued, every day the rebellion surged on, was another day the Americans were closer to winning. Every pound the British government spent and every British soldier who went home in a wooden box was one step closer to the British Parliament and their king deciding that this simply wasn't worth it and the Americans could have their independence. With the scene set thusly, the Continental Congress will call upon George Washington to be the leader of the Continental Army. Washington did not actively lobby for the position, but in classic Washington humble brag, he does show up in full military uniform to the Continental Congress, the only guy who did so. So a not so subtle cue that he wanted to embrace this. Sometimes people think Washington was sort of posing for history because his letters, uh, his correspondence are so meticulous. The guy comes off as so perfect and people sort of accuse him of that sort of humble brag type mentality. But when you read his private correspondence that was meant only for his wife or for friends and family, there's not a whole lot of change. It looks like Washington and his supreme, humble um, veneer was, was legitimate, and he does accept the role of commander of the Continental Army. Washington is going to be handed one of the most difficult challenges that any military leader ever had. As I mentioned, the United States was comically undersupplied, and his men were a ramshackle, ragtag, disorganized band of militia. And he would be given the, the task of making them an army that was able to compete with and occasionally defeat the most disciplined and well-trained and well-equipped fighting force on planet Earth and the British Redcoats. Washington has said that discipline is the soul of an army, and it was thoroughly lacking. Washington will have to bring an iron sort of discipline, including physical punishment uh, to those who would not follow um, his commands, especially those pertaining to basic sanitation with disease killing so many people in his army. It's worth being reminded that until the First World War, 
Disease was the biggest killer of soldiers in every single human conflict until the First World War, where weapons finally take more lives than disease did. So the lack of sanitation and hygiene because of undisciplined activity in the camps was as big an enemy to Washington as the Redcoats ever were. And that was causing desertion and all kinds of other problems. And Washington and a lot of Washington's things that made him such a hero of the revolution, they're not sort of the sexiest things, but Washington's ability to get his guys to dig a proper latrine was the difference between independence and subjugation for the American colonists of the late 18th century. I don't think any military historian would ever put Washington up there with your Alexanders or Napoleons as far as military genius. But Washington didn't understand the big picture. Washington did not need to attack the British headlong. He didn't need to score huge victories to end the revolution. He didn't even need to protect cities, as evidenced by the fact that New York and Philadelphia will, will fall to the British in short order. What Washington needed to do was survive. And one thing Washington was able to see as a big picture tactician was the value of tactical retreat. Again, it's not the most dashing sort of heroism, but it's what's going to win the war. And when Washington does choose to fight, he makes a count. Washington's tactical retreats probably saved the Continental Army, even if his troops grumbled and Congress screamed and the armchair quarterbacks around the colonies wondered what he was doing. He realized he generally was outnumbered, outgunned with a force that was inferior in experience to the British. And his retreats generally worked. But when he did choose to fight, he made a count. Late in the year 1776, Washington will be in desperate need of a morale-boosting victory to make sure his men did not leave after their enlistments expired on January 1st. On Christmas Day, breaking the conventions of warfare that usually called for a cessation of hostilities in winter months, especially on a Christian holiday like Christmas, Washington will make his famous night crossing of the Delaware, and he will score his decisive victory at Trenton and follow it up with another at Princeton years, uh, weeks later. When Washington did fight, he made a count. Washington, with massive aid from the French, will score the decisive victory of the American Revolution in 1781 at Yorktown, uh, capturing the army of Lord Charles Cornwallis, and the United States over the next 18 months will negotiate its independence. What sets Washington apart from, and I really had to rack my brain here, almost every ancient, medieval, and modern revolutionary hero is that he will not follow up his military victory and popularity with a play for political power. The picture I use for the um, title page of this podcast is a picture I took at the National, uh, uh, the, the Smithsonian Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. 
and it has George Washington in a toga, and it's called the American Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus was a ancient Roman Republican figure. As his history slash legend goes, the Romans are battling the Etruscans, and they're losing early in the Roman Republic. And the Roman Republic had this sort of safety hatch that in times of crisis, they could elect a dictator, someone who would be in complete control, could cut through the nuance and the slow speed of senatorial decision-making and would be in complete control. And they go to this retired general working on his farm named Cincinnatus, and they say, your country needs you. And Cincinnatus comes out of retirement, and he is dictator. And in 15 days, he completely destroys the Etruscans. And they hold this triumph for him back at Rome, this parade party celebration in his honor. And the people offer him a crown. They say, be our leader, be our king. And Cincinnatus is disgusted by it. And he throws down the crown and he says, Rome is to be a republic. You want to give me a reward? Let me go home to my family and my farm. And Cincinnatus gives the power back to Rome. Statue of Washington in a Roman-style toga, <laughs> or Washington is comically ripped, by the way, uh, is Washington embodying Cincinnatus. Because after the Revolutionary War, many people wanted to make Washington the leader of the United States, perhaps even the king of the United States. They especially were attracted to this because since Washington had no biological children, that perhaps maybe he would be a safe pick for a, you know, sort of like a transitional monarch. And Washington was like, idiots, we just fought this revolution to not have a king. No, I do not want to be a king. In fact, I don't even want to lead anymore. I just want to go home. I just want to go back to Mount Vernon and be a farmer again. And in the aftermath of the revolution, that's what he did. He leaves. He leaves the country on its own. But of course, it wouldn't be long until his country came knocking. The Articles of Confederation, that first attempt at government, were a failure. The second attempt was a home run. The Constitution, this living document, is going to the masterstroke American political invention. And it will call for a chief executive, not a, a king, but a president. And the people overwhelmingly, desperately wanted George Washington to be that president. Washington will accept. Uh, and Washington as president will establish so many of the precedents of how this government was going to be run and how things were going to be handled. The people's personal loyalty to Washington made all his decisions sort of right in their eyes. He wasn't questioned. And so he could kind of establish things without having critics breathing down his neck the way any other leader would have to process criticism. There's a great moment. I don't recall if it's Washington as president. I think it's actually toward the end of the revolution. Washington, this shows the loyalty of his men. Washington's men are ready to mutiny because they're not getting paid. Government has no money. The United States was always broke in its infancy. And Washington addresses 
his fellow soldiers because he is he is trying to quell this this mutiny and he's giving this speech and at one point he can't read his own writing and he pauses to pull out a pair of uh, spectacles reading glasses essentially and he pulls them out and he says something to the effect of forgive me i've grown old in the service of my country and when he says this grown men reported to have you know broke down and cried here's washington who has given everything to the revolutionary cause. How dare they grumble about paychecks being late and this sort of mutinous spirit breaks down right there. Washington also is going to keep the country together. There is a man in South America called Simon Bolivar. And when the South American, uh, what are now South American countries, rebel against Spain, they form this sort of United States of South America called Gran Colombia. And Simone Bolivar is the leading general who becomes the leader of Gran Colombia. And sometimes he's called the South American George Washington. And I do not think he deserves this title. Because yes, like Washington, he did lead a successful revolt against the European power. But unlike Washington, and this is the critical difference, this is that great man history stuff, he can't keep Grand Columbia together, and it fractures into a half dozen smaller South American states. What an alternate history where there is a United States of North America and perhaps an equally wealthy and powerful United States of South America. How about that for a world to be living in? But Boulevard can't do it. Washington did. One way Washington keeps the country together is in the famed Whiskey Rebellion. Once again, right here in western Pennsylvania, we see events that have potentially world-shaking implications. In this case, there were a group of farmers who refused to pay a tax on whiskey. Whiskey was used as currency in this area of the country at that time, and they refused to be taxed. After all, they reasoned, we really don't care about that federal government in New York City. We don't really care about those people in Boston. Why should we be taxed? We live on the frontier. Just leave us alone. Fight the Indians when we need it. And Washington was furious the tax would not be paid. And he decided to make sure it was paid. He will, to quell the rebellion, be the only president ever to lead troops. He pulls out his old Revolutionary War uniform, still fits, gets on a horse, and goes galloping toward the rebels with federal troops behind him. It took nothing more than the shadow of Washington. When they heard Washington himself was leading troops, the rebellion melts away immediately. There is no conflict, there are no casualties, and the taxes are paid. A living legend had just scolded them. Of course, they would fall in line. This was the cult of personality, the awe that Washington inspired, the single-handed sort of leadership that made the United States possible, and I think is more than just a collection of forces and geography, as some later historians might suggest. Washington will establish so many precedents as president. It started the second he became president, the presidential oath, he added the phrase, so help me God, 
to the end, and every president has echoed that sentiment after. If Washington did it, so should I, is the reasoning. There was nothing in the Constitution at the time that said a president could not serve as many terms as he was elected. After two terms, Washington said he had enough. He wanted to go back to his farm, and no man should have more power than that. Until Franklin Roosevelt in the 20th century, facing the dual calamity of the Great Depression and the Second World War, every president did the same. And after Roosevelt, the Congress and the people of the United States decided to make that an amendment to the Constitution, that Washington's two-term precedent is now the law of the land, and no president shall serve more than two terms. Washington also came up with one of the most iconic titles in American politics, simple, perfect. While some people wanted to call the chief executive His Excellency, John Adams proposed so many flowery different titles, His Majesty, so he was on par with kings, Washington settled on Mr. President, and that's a term we use today. Washington is going to be the first to pick a cabinet to help serve around him. And he had an all-star team of Jefferson, Hamilton, Adams, and Knox. I get frustrated sometimes when people say the president passed a law, oh, Trump passed that law, or Obama made that law. It's not really the way the Constitution works. The Congress makes laws. The president simply signs them into office. But George Washington set a precedent that is followed by many presidents, and that is proposing legislation to the Congress. And once again, when you have the popularity of George Washington, your proposals are usually heeded. He also was very much and this is something that you need some context on. He was very interested, and this is a decision that really helps the United States, of keeping the United States out of foreign entanglements, as he called them. Washington was an isolationist, particularly when some people believed that we should pay back the favor and fight tyranny in the French Revolution. Washington says, that is Europe's problem, and we're going to stay out of it. Thank you, but no thanks. Now, some people in the 21st century like to see Washington's warning against um, global connectedness and believe we should be isolationist. Obviously, the world of George Washington in the end of the 18th century is a completely different one. It is not applicable to 2020, uh, but for that time period, the United States being blessed by geography and not entangling itself in world affairs allowed it to grow and strengthen itself before its big debut on the world scene and eventual rise to superpowerdom. So Washington seemed to be right about that one too. Washington is going to be saddled by historians with one great sin. If you're looking for one way to to degrade George Washington, what you have to go with is he was a slaveholder. And Washington, we'll have a tremendous amount of slaves in Mount Vernon. Washington is going to be interested in the early abolitionist movement. He is going to 
upon his death manumit his slaves. And that means free them. However, the manumission for Washington seemed to be he didn't think slavery was economically beneficial. It might not have been more, uh, you know, a, the traditional abolitionist motivation. Still, though, and this kind of goes with the isolationist comments, I, I feel as a grave injustice to judge Washington or any historical figure by the morality of the 21st century. I think just about all historical figures will come up wanting, and you are doing yourself a disservice by applying that logic to a very different time and place. Some people will not buy that argument. To them, right and wrong are universal, uh, and it doesn't matter, but I think you are you are really pigeonholing pretty much all historical figures who just lived in a world that were so very different to ours. Washington will die shortly after leaving office, and he will almost immediately become, become the symbol of this new United States. It is my belief that people like Washington are a case study for this great man history, that they are going to create a picture where their absence does change the way things play out. And the United States would grow in a very different timetable and way if it ever truly existed at all without someone like Washington. The United States will continue to grow and expand, uh, and that will include it pushing further into the center of the continent uh, and some confrontations it will have with the natives that lived there. Uh, we're going to have to make that a story for another day.